Pastor Xavier Reese says, righteous judgment is never wrong. Jesus is not interested in exposing sin as much as he is in covering and forgiving your sin. If you confess, you repent, he'll forgive. He's not interested in embarrassing you. He's not saying, man, I can't wait to get that guy. I'm going to just humble him. I'm going to just... He's not interested in that. Now, you and I, we are. God isn't. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. You know, in this day and age, headline news is often dominated with titillating gossip from a media who seem to go to any length to reveal whatever skeletons lurk in the closets of celebrities and politicians alike. But Pastor Xavier illustrates quite the opposite today, the simple truth from Scripture that God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn, but that through Him might be saved. In fact, it's all in a message entitled, He Who Is Without Sin. John chapter 8, but we're going to begin with chapter 7, verse 53. Let me read the section for you, okay? And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. But early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The story has three movements, which reveals Jesus' righteous judgment in contrast to the unrighteous judgment of the scribes and the Pharisees. First, we have the setting chosen for the woman's judgment. Notice that it is the day before, on the eighth day of the feast, that the Sanhedrin had failed to arrest Jesus in the temple area. And at the end of that day, everyone went to their own house. Verse 53. This is the setting. Jesus had declared that Israel still needed to depend upon him and they were still in need of spiritual thirst to be quenched in chapter 7, verse 37, 39. After hearing this, they all went to their own house. The next day, Jesus came back to the temple. Now, once again, the word but puts Jesus in sharp contrast to the religious rulers who went to their houses. But Jesus, he was there early in the morning. Why? Because he cared and loved the people. How did he demonstrate that? He taught the people. You see? He taught the people. So this is the setting for the woman's judgment who was caught in adultery. 
I mean, beautiful morning, sun's out, people are coming, Jesus teaching. What could go wrong? Fungus among us. As long as you have man around, there's going to be problems. So we move on to the setting up of Jesus for judgment, verse 3 through the middle portion of 6. The scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and set her in the midst, a place of humiliation. They told Jesus right here in verse 4 that they caught her in the very act. The fact that they caught her in the very act exposed their respective persons and the evil intent of their heart. Because where's the man? I presume if you get caught in the very act, there's two of you. Where's the man? So they say here, listen, the law of Moses commanded us to stone her. What do you say? And then we get the commentary on their motives in verse 6. It says that they were doing this, testing Jesus. The word testing means to put to the test in order to prove. The word in a positive context is used to verify and to authenticate the trustworthiness and the genuineness of a person or an object. If you're going to swing across Niagara Falls on a rope, I would presume you want to put a 300-pound weight before you swing on it, make sure it's going to hold you. The word in the context, as it is here in the negative, is in a bad sense. To test one maliciously, craftily, to put to the proof his feelings and judgment so that he would fail. He said, man, we've tried, we've got him. You know what? Wicked people are good thinkers. Boy, they are thinking people. Boy, they think, boy, I can do this, and then I'll cover this. You know, they're always thinking. And they're always thinking of trapping Jesus. And just when they think they have him, he's gone. (laughs) You know, some people think they have God over a barrel. Yeah, I got it all covered. I've done all kinds of things. I've never got caught. Be patient. (laughs) Be patient, please. He will get to you. So the apostle John provides the explanation that they might have something of which to accuse him. If Jesus said, stone her, he would lose favor and influence with the people. For he was known as what? A friend of sinners. Also, They could accuse Jesus before Rome that he, in fact, instigated this stoning and the right to stone and put people to death had been removed from them by the very words in John 18, 31, when they were before Pilate. If he would have said, release her, he would be guilty of violating the law of Moses, which was the law of God, the very father who he was claiming had sent him and he was serving. So they have figured it out. They have thought it through. And they think we have got him this time. And right in front, right in the morning, right in the temple, right before everybody. And so they brought her in the midst of the crowd before Jesus. Get the picture. Why in the midst? To publicly discredit Jesus and to publicly pressure Jesus and to publicly humiliate the woman. This was a setting up of Jesus for judgment. I can just see their mouth salivating. We've got him. Which brings us to the setting forth of righteous judgment by Jesus. Verses 6, the rest of it, to verse 12. 
Notice first in verse 6, Jesus remained silent at their accusation. The word but, again, marks a sharp contrast between their motives and the Lord's motives. The Lord stooped down and wrote with his finger on the ground. That would be the last thing I would expect God to do. That should teach us something. We never know what God's going to do. <laughs> we think we know. That's our problem. We don't know what God's going to do. Notice the Lord did not even give them much importance, acting as if he did not hear them. Do you know that some of the loudest words are silence? Where you know you're busted. I mean, you are busted. And all this person is, just looks at you and just goes, doesn't say nothing. But they, they just, you heard it. You just walk away. Some of the loudest rebukes are silence. Notice secondly in verses 7 through 9. Jesus responds to their insistent accusation. Jesus at this time lifted himself up and looked straight into their faces knowing what their judgment was regarding the woman and himself because chapter 2 verse 24 and 25 says that no man needed to tell him anything because he knew what was in man, right? He knows why they're there, who put it together. He knows the man who committed adultery. And he's looking right into their eyes. You know what? They know he knows. Jesus looked into their faces and pronounced judgment on them by declaring that the person who was without sin was to cast the first stone. Right where they thought they had him, he blew them away. You see, the law said that the first person who saw that person commit the sin, whatever it might be, they were to be the first ones to lay hands and stone them, and then everybody else followed. They were expecting Jesus to quote Deuteronomy 17, 7. Okay, the first person, stoner, he says, no, the first person who's without sin. <laughs> they go, oh, stop, and they're dead tracks. You see, the only one who could throw a stone didn't. He's standing right in front of her. And notice, Jesus has not looked into her eyes. Only the men's. He hasn't looked upon her yet. That's real interesting to me. Notice thirdly here in verses 8 and 9. Jesus reminded them of their own sinfulness. Now, he's put on the red light. Now he's going to write him the ticket. He stooped down again and once again wrote on the ground. Here goes God again. I wouldn't expect him to write on the ground again. Those who gave ear and understood the question, being convicted of their own conscience, departed one by one from the oldest to the youngest. Now, what did Jesus write? It's not known. And any suggestion is mere guesswork. But allow me to suggest, not what he wrote, but to suggest that we have put the focus and emphasis on the wrong place. Suggestions have been that he wrote down the most recent sin of these men. 
Suggestion says that maybe he wrote the very man who committed the act of adultery or whatever. Many different things like that. But see, listen. The text says that they were convicted at what they heard, not what he wrote. What did they hear? He that has never sinned is sinning or will ever sin. That's why they were convicted, not because of what he wrote. The very silence of Jesus and the awareness of their own sin before God in the person of Jesus convicted each of them and silenced them. They knew they were guilty. They knew they were not flawless. And they knew that he knew and they couldn't stand before God being guilty. That's why they walked away, not because of what he wrote, because of what they heard. Mm. So Jesus is left alone with the woman in the mist. She stood in the mist alone for the immediate circle of her hypocritical accusers had been run off by their conscience. What a beautiful picture of every person who will be judged by Jesus one day. One on one. If God is so personal with me here on earth, do you think he's going to be any less personal up there? Give him a break, will you? Cut him some slack. <laughs> no one will be there to defend me. No one will be there to justify me. No one will be there to excuse me. Me and him. No one else. Jesus is not interested in exposing sin as much as he is in covering and forgiving your sin. For God did not send a son to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. He told us in John 3, 17. Here's the fulfillment of it. You see? If you confess, you repent, he'll forgive. He's not interested in embarrassing you. He's not saying, man, I can't wait to get that guy. I'm going to just humble him. I'm going to just, I'm going to do it right in his birthday party. When everybody's there, the whole family. <laughs> He's not interested in that. Now, you and I, we are. God isn't. Very important. Fourth and last, look at verse 10 and 11. Jesus releases the woman of her sin and guilt. Mark that well. Sin and guilt. He now looks to the woman, seeing none of the men. A bunch of wimps. <laughs> That's good news. No men around. He addresses her with respect. Does he? Does he say, you harlot? No. He says, woman. The very same word that he used for his mother in John 2-4 at Canaan. Woman. Man, God is so good. He asked her where her accusers were and if any man had condemned her. Her response was, no one, Lord. And Jesus gave her the reason why in verse 11. He said, neither do I condemn you, which implies her repentance and the forgiveness of her sin. Well, I didn't read it here. If he says, neither do I condemn you, it is obvious that he has seen her heart of repentance, confession, and he's imparted forgiveness. 
That's our problem. We don't see this. So we judge according to appearance, right? Unrighteous judgment. He said, go and sin no more, which implies not only does she not go commit adultery anymore, but any sin that would grieve God and separate her from the fellowship of God. Once again, Jesus alone sees the heart and knows the heart. You and I, the only way we can know that is through time. If you tell me you're a Christian, then I only know that as I spend time with you. If you tell me you've repented from a sin, I only know that if I, as I let time run. But God knows it immediately. This occasion is much like the prostitute who entered Simon's house as he was invited. He invited Jesus to eat with him, remember? In Luke 7, 36 through 50. And as he came, he did not give Jesus some oil for his head, didn't kiss him, didn't wash his feet. And so as they're talking, this woman comes in and begins to wash the feet of Jesus. She's a prostitute with her tears and then dry them with her hair. And as they're conversing, Simon's speaking to himself saying, if this man knew what man or woman she was, he would have none to do with her. He's making a judgment on both of them, her and Jesus. And Jesus, reading his thoughts, says, Simon, I have somewhat to say to you. He says, say on, Master. He says, there were two creditors that owed this man, and, and one very little, the other one a lot. They were both forgiven. Who do you think will be loved much more? He says, simple. He says, the one who owed the most. He says, you have rightly said. He says, do you see this? Listen to the word. Woman. Her sins are many, and they were forgiven. So she loves much. Let me suggest to you that the story of the unjust steward is there because of you and of me. We are they. We have to be reminded daily. Mm. This is the setting forth of righteous judgment by Jesus. Ah, and so good, doesn't it? It kind of brings everything to perspective, doesn't it? Now, I want to leave you with the setting forth of basic principles for the story because there are some things you can draw out of here could be wrong. Let me leave you some important ones. First of all, there will always be imperfect judgment by man in this life. Hear me well. There will always be imperfect judgment by man in this life. On this side of heaven, you're going to find it. So don't be pouting. Don't get into a long ranger theology. You know, people are going to fail you. Church is going to fail you. Pastors are going to fail you. Okay? So just go to the Lord, bite your lip, and grow up, and keep walking. It's going to happen. Malicious judgment as this will occur. There will be some people who will go after you. They'll go for the juggler vein. And they'll call themselves Christians even sometimes. It's going to happen. So don't be disappointed. There'll be self-righteous judgment, forgetting that they were forgiven for all or how much they were forgiven for, and also, if given the right circumstance, they would fail too. They've forgotten this. They're self-righteous. You're going to get that type of judgment from non-believers as well as from believers. But also, there's critical judgment, which is really hypocritical, and it's never-ending. That's where Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1 through 5, he says, judge not lest you be judged with the same measure you measure out, it'll meet it out to you. So people take that scripture and say, oh, I don't judge because it'll come back. No, read the context. 
It's talking about a person who is critical, censorious, finds everything fault all the time. They find nothing good. That's the person that sees a, a glass half full all the time. I mean, half empty. I mean, they find fault in everything. Now, if you think that's a gift of the Spirit, bury it. Okay? It's not. Do yourself a favor in the church. These judgments, people, you're going to get as long as you're a Christian. In the church, outside the church. So don't get into pouting seasons. Grow up. Deal with them. Trust God for it. Secondly, there must always be judgment of sin in a biblical way. Always be judgment of sin in a biblical way. First, sin needs to be confessed, repented before God, and abandoned. It must be confessed, repented of, abandoned. And if it ever possible, restitution made. Only when it's possible. Sometimes it's worse to try to make restitution. You open a can of worms. Also, sin needs to be confronted when it involves others in the body of Jesus Christ. According to Scripture, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, by one, by two, by three, then the elders. Okay? Biblical. Very important. Galatians 6, 1 and 3 says, In the spirit of meekness and gentleness, lest you be tempted also, and you want to be confronted the same way. James 5, 19, 20, You hide a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4, 8, Same thing. Love covers a multitude of sins, and you restore man into fellowship when you confront them. So, we do it biblically. So it's not speaking against not judging. Okay? Sin is sin. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. You as parents love your children, you confront them. If you don't confront them, you don't love them. Very simple. Okay? Third, there are always consequences that will live with us even though our sins are forgiven by the cross and by our confession. Consequences will remain. There is never a question about your forgiveness. That is an absolute when there's genuine repentance. Forgiveness is absolute. No question. Okay? But there must never be a confusion between forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness is unquestionable. It's there. That's between you and God. But restoration depends on the offense, the person, the position he holds in the church, and the damage to the people. And that must be done through prayer, through examination of all information, the people, and then made a judgment based on the scriptures. Some people, though they're forgiven, they can never be restored to a certain position in ministry because of what happened. Because they're not blameless anymore. They can't qualify 1 Timothy 3 and Titus. Very important. When you exalt ability over purity, you're in bad shape. You might as well forget it. There's sin in the camp. Forgiveness, no problem. Restoration, that's a matter we have to sit down and talk. How, when, where, how much. Very important. And so, important principles to draw from this story. These three movements reveal Jesus, his righteous judgment. The setting chosen for the woman's judgment was malicious. The setting up of Jesus for judgment was thought to be sure. And the setting forth of righteous judgment by Jesus was grace. Nothing but grace. I hope you're living there. I hope you're giving it out. May God speak to each of our hearts. 
Pastor Xavier Reese, summarizing for us the simple truths we find demonstrated in the righteous judgment of the Lord Jesus with the woman caught in adultery. And you can hear this message again, if you like, online anytime by selecting today's date under the radio tab at calvarychapelpasadena.com. And as we've come to the conclusion of this message, He Who Is Without Sin, you may be interested to know that we have copies available for any who contact us with a request. It's available on CD for just $4. Just mention that title, He Who Is Without Sin, or simply today's date, and it would be our pleasure to send you one. And by the way, there's more material here than our time allows us on the air, so it would make a great personal study tool. Again, that title, He Who Is Without Sin. And address your request to Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Again, that's Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And when we hear from you, it's a blessing for us to know what station you hear our program. This is information we use to track the effectiveness of this radio ministry, so thank you for your help in that regard. Next time, we'll hear the story of a blind man who sees the light of the world for the first time. Hope we'll see you then. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. www.calvarychapelpasadena.com